In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and rule, rule over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. These opening verses in our Bibles contain some of the most critical principles for understanding a biblical theology of God's creation plan. God's kingdom on this earth begins at creation, not at the second coming. God commissioned man to rule this earth under God's dominion, under God's authority. Man was created to be a mediatorial ruler over this earth. God intended humans to govern this earth while being accountable to God for our governance. But man didn't like ruling under God and being accountable to God. Man wanted to rule without God. He wanted absolute rule, not mediatorial rule. Man wanted to be emperor, not governor, of this world. So humans rebelled against God and sinned. God cursed humanity and human kingdoms. The world was plunged into decay and destruction because man wanted his way, not God's way. The mess the world is in today is the fault of humanity's desire to rule apart from God, resulting in conflict and dissolution. Someone has said, the only thing wrong with the world is the people. There's another saying which goes, if someone offers you the world on a silver platter, take the platter. The messes we create for ourselves are a direct result of our desire to rule our own lives. That's true on a national and international level, and it is true on a personal level as well. But God has a plan. He had a plan for kingdom renewal and restoration before he ever created this world in the first place. Ever since the first sin by humans, God has been instituting his plan to establish his kingdom on earth once again. God told Moses to tell the people of Israel in Exodus 19.6, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. John the Baptist came preaching that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus came preaching the gospel of God. The good news Jesus proclaimed was that the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The Apostle Paul in Rome, at the end of the book of Acts, was still preaching the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God on this earth is the grand theme of the Bible and the great destiny of humanity. God has a plan for kingdom renewal. 
God's purpose for human history is to reestablish his kingdom rule upon this earth. And he will never be satisfied until humanity bows our arrogant knees before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. The answer to our national and international problems in this world is finding the right key to fit the deadlock of creation. Jesus Christ is the key. The world will one day recognize him as the key when he returns to restore his kingdom upon this earth and reclaim the rule that was rightfully his. The message of Zechariah 14 is that Christ founds his kingdom on earth. Look at Zechariah 14 verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day, the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. Notice, first of all, that Christ founds his kingdom on his supremacy. So what is the best form of government for this world? Is it democracy? No. I will tell you that the best form of world government is not democracy. It is a dictatorship. A dictatorship is the most efficient and effective form of government. The problem with a dictatorship is the dictator. A perfect dictatorship requires a perfect dictator who knows everything and yet never does anything wrong, ever. He must never make a mistake. Since we have no perfect dictators... A democracy is an ideal government for a less-than-ideal world. A democracy is a civic concession to the depravity of man. Zechariah tells us that there is coming a day when God will be king over this earth. He will be supreme. He will be the perfect dictator. He will be the only king, and his name will be the only name. That's why the prophet Isaiah quoted the Lord as saying, I am the Lord and there is no other, in Isaiah 45.5. When Moses was first commissioned by God to lead the kingdom of Israel, he asked for a name to identify the Lord because he knew he was only a governor, a mediatorial ruler under God and accountable to God. And the Lord named himself I am that I am, Exodus 3.14. I am that I am. There is no other. The Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray, and we have been repeating the disciples' prayer for two millennia now. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then at the end of the prayer we say, For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. On the day of Zechariah 14.9, that prayer that we have prayed for 2,000 years and counting will be finally answered. John, in the last book of the Bible, Revelation 11.15 pictures the heavenly crowds rejoicing with the words, 
the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And the 24 elders fell on their faces in worship and said, We give you thanks, O Lord God the Almighty, who are and who were, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. As the prophet Zechariah predicted long before Christ walked this earth, the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. So Christ founds his kingdom on his supremacy, and secondly, Christ founds his kingdom on his security in verses 10 and 11. All the land will be changed into a plain from Geba to Ramon, south of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem will rise and remain on its site from Benjamin's gate as far as the place of the first gate to the corner gate and from the tower of Hananel to the king's wine presses. People will live in it, and there will no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. Dramatic topographical changes will take place in the land of Palestine. Currently, the city of Jerusalem is in the hill country surrounded by other hills. But in the Millennial Kingdom, the city will be set apart by major changes in the landscape. The land around the city will be flattened to form a large plain, while Jerusalem will be elevated above the plain. Giba historically was located six miles north of the city, according to 2 Kings 23.8, while Ramon is believed to have been a location 35 miles south of Jerusalem. The word for plain is the Hebrew word used of the Jordan River Valley, which extends from the base of the 9,000-foot Mount Hermon in the north all the way south to the Dead Sea. It is some of the most fertile land in Palestine. And God tells the people that the whole land will become a plain like the Jordan River Valley with Jerusalem in the center. Jerusalem will again be inhabited by people and no more will the city be under a curse. The people will live in God's security in the city. Now, what a total reversal of Israel's situation in the world today. Israel still lives today under God's curse because they have rejected Messiah. Israel lives today in terrible fear and insecurity. She fears the Palestinians. She fears the Arabs who surround her and the other nations. She relies on her weapons of warfare and her political alliances with powerful nations like America, but weapons and politics have not brought her security. She has no security. Weapons and politics only breed fear and anxiety. Israel will never experience security, true security, in the land until she comes to trust in her Messiah. It is his security that Israel needs today. Third, Christ founds his kingdom on his victory, verses 12 through 15. These verses explain how God defeats the enemies of his kingdom identified in verses 1 through 3 of this chapter. 
the great victory of Armageddon, which saves the nation of Israel from certain destruction just in the nick of time, will be accomplished when Jesus Christ returns. How will he win the victory? Well, Zechariah identifies three weapons of mass destruction in these verses. The first weapon of mass destruction is the plague in verse 12 and verse 15. The plague. Look at verse 12. Now this will be the plague which the Lord will strike all the peoples who have gone to war against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they stand on their feet, and their eyes will rot in their sockets, and their tongue will rot in their mouth. And again in verse 15, So also like this plague will be the plague on the horse, the mule, the camel, the donkey, and all the cattle that will be in those camps. On August 6, 1945, at 8.15 a.m., three bombers flew over Japan. Air raid warnings sounded, but to most Japanese, it didn't seem like a major attack. Two bombs were dropped on Hiroshima and one on Nagasaki. These three bombs changed the world forever. They obliterated two cities, and man has lived with the fear of nuclear holocaust ever since. The description of these verses about the plague in Zechariah 14 sound much like the description of what happens in a nuclear war. God doesn't say whether he will visit this plague on the, on the nations directly or indirectly, but the enemies of Christ's kingdom will be vaporized one day. The first weapon of mass destruction that God uses is the plague, which leads directly to the second weapon of mass destruction, the panic in verse 13. It will come about in that day that a great panic from the Lord, from the Lord, will fall on them, and they will seize one another's hand, and the hand of one will be lifted against the hand of another. Fear is the plague. Fear will so overwhelm the enemies of God's kingdom that they will panic. And in their terror at facing an almighty God, whom they never believed existed in the first place, they will kill each other as they seek to flee from his horrifying presence. But they cannot flee from the presence of God on this day. There is no escape from God. So the plague leads to the panic, which opens the door for the people in verse 14. Judah also will fight at Jerusalem, and the wealth of all the surrounding nations will be gathered, gold and silver and garments in great abundance. God will then lead his own people, the nation of Judah, into the battle for the city of Jerusalem. The Israelites will fight like the greatest warriors on the face of the earth. Zechariah told us that back in chapter 12 and verse 8. The nation of Israel will inherit the wealth of the nations of this world. 
earlier in verse 1 of chapter 14, Zechariah predicted that the spoil taken from you, meaning Israel, the spoil taken from Israel will be divided among you Israelites. Israel will recoup her losses down through history. The prophet Haggai, Zechariah's contemporary, wrote in Haggai 2, 7 and 8, with God speaking, I will shake all the nations, and they will come with the wealth of all the nations, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. The silver is mine, and the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The prophet Isaiah described the prosperity and security of Israel in an extended prophecy in Isaiah 60, verses 10 through 22. Once forsaken and hated by the entire world, Isaiah says, they will, quote-unquote, suck the milk of the nations and enjoy the world's gold and silver. Israel will take back all that the nations took from them down through history. Then Isaiah writes, Then you will know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. It is Jesus Christ who is Israel's Savior and Redeemer. It is his kingdom, not man's kingdom, that God establishes on that day. The world must learn that only God's holy war will ever bring perfect peace to this world. Engraved on a wall in Ralph Bunch Park, across the street from the United Nations headquarters in New York City, are the words of Isaiah 2, verse 4. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Unfortunately, the United Nations, or whoever designed that uh, plaque, that engraving, left out the first part of the verse, which is the most important part of the verse. Because Isaiah said, and he, Messiah, will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many pe peoples. Only Christ can bring the peace the world seeks. The UN never will. Jesus is the solution to the wars of this world. You see, humanity still wants to run his kingdom his way. We think that we are capable of establishing a kingdom of world peace and prosperity. Organizations like the United Nations are, are laudable in their desire for peace. But my friends, only the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, will ever bring about world peace. He will do it when he judges the world for its sin and rebellion against God. Only then will we experience true peace on earth. Fourth, Christ founds his kingdom on his sovereignty in verses 16 to 19. Then it will come about 
than any who are left of all the nations that, have, that went up against Jerusalem, will go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to celebrate the Feast of Booths. And it will be that whichever of the families of the earth does not go up to Jerusalem to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up or enter, then no rain will fall on them. It will be the plague with which the Lord smites the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. This will be the punishment of Egypt and the punishment of all the nations who do not go up to celebrate the Feast of Booths. There are survivors of this terrible destruction among the nations of the world. Not everyone who lives in the nations which attack Jerusalem is against God's kingdom rule or against Messiah. God has a remnant of believers among all the nations of the world who will enter his kingdom and enjoy his blessings. These believers will go up to Jerusalem at least once a year to celebrate the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles in the kingdom that Christ establishes on earth. Succoth, or the Feast of Booths, was the final festival of the Jewish year. It followed the Day of Atonement when the people were cleansed of their sins. So it was a festival of gratitude to God for his grace and mercy to humans. First, there was the pouring out of the water in the temple, symbolizing the prayers for rain as a sign of God's blessing on his people. Remember that in Zechariah 14, verse 8, we read about the living water flowing out of Jerusalem. God will bless his people, both physically and spiritually, in that day. Second, in the Feast of Booths, there was a brilliant lighting of the temple on the last day of the feast. The pilgrims would enter the temple with their lighted torches, and the great candlesticks in the temple were lit to shine down God's glory on his people. Remember that in Zechariah 14, verses 6 and 7, we learn that the world will not need any natural light, because Jesus Christ will be the light of the world. The Feast of Booths is a marvelous picture of this great chapter of Zechariah 14. The Feast comes after the Day of Atonement. You see, the Day of Atonement will not be celebrated in the Millennial Kingdom because the cross of Christ accomplished our atonement forever. The worship in the Kingdom is based on Christ's atonement for all our sins. The Feast of Booths celebrates the regathering of the nation of Israel and the ingathering of the nations of this world to worship Christ on the throne of David in the city of Jerusalem. We know that these verses do not describe the new heavens and earth because the next verses in Zechariah 14 tell us about how God will judge sin during this time period. Only believers enter the millennial kingdom according to Matthew 25, 31. 
But there will be people who will be born during the millennial kingdom, and some will rebel against God in sin. Jesus Christ rules the world with a rod of iron, according to Psalm 2. And when a nation refuses to attend the festival of worship, then God will enforce his rule by not sending rain upon them. I believe that the Hebrew construction used here indicates that the nations will send representatives to the festival in verse 17. Not that every person in every family will attend every festival. Nations that rebel, who refuse to send their representatives to worship Christ in the temple in Jerusalem, those nations that rebel will be judged. Egypt is mentioned in particular because Egypt was not dependent on rainfall for her crops. The Nile River was the source of Egypt's prosperity. Now, verse 18 is difficult to translate into Hebrew, but the point of the verse would seem to be that for Egypt there will be additional judgment for any rebellion, since the withholding of rain would not mean much to them. God will send a plague against them if they rebel. It's the same word used earlier in the chapter, and also recalls the fact that God used plagues against the nation of Egypt in order to redeem Israel in the past. So God says, follow my directions for worship. Follow my directions for worship. No one who rebels against God in his kingdom will get away with it. Humans must play by God's rules or lose God's blessings. God says, it's my way or the highway in the kingdom. He rules with absolute sovereignty. God rules without exception and without compromise over his kingdom. Fifth, God founds his kingdom on his sanctity in verses 20 to 21. In that day, there will be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord, and the cooking pots in the Lord's house will be like the bowls before the altar. Every cooking pot in Jerusalem and in Judah will be holy to the Lord of hosts, and all who sacrifice will come and take of them and boil in them, and there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. The expression, holy to the Lord, was an expression which was engraved on the gold plate worn on the turban of the high priest, according to Exodus 28.36. However, all of Israel was always intended by God to be holy toward the Lord, Exodus 19.6. In the millennial kingdom, the bells of the horses and even the ordinary dirty old cooking pots of the people will become holy to the Lord. No longer will there be any distinction between the sacred and the secular. Everything in life will be sacred, even the tools of everyday living. The word holy originally meant set apart. We think of holiness in terms of moral purity, but a cooking pot cannot possess moral purity. 
Holiness means that something or someone is exclusively God's. By extension, of course, anything or anyone that is under God's control exclusively is going to be morally pure. So we come to understand holiness in terms of moral purity. But it is helpful helpful for us to understand that holiness means that all I am is exclusively for God to use. And that's what it means to be holy. James Montgomery Boyce makes an interesting point in his book when he asks the question, have you ever thought of holiness in terms of your destiny as a child of God? Boyce points out that we think of things relationally today. We view ourselves as created for love with God, for a relationship. We stress our relationship with the Father. But there is a very real sense in which we are created for holiness. The reason we have such a poor relationship with God is because we are unholy. Holiness is our eternal destiny. Now, I mean that until we realize that we are God's exclusive domain, we are owned by him, and everything that we have is his to own, then we can never have the kind of relationship which he wants for us, because we are always trying to rule part of our own lives. The kingdom of God is founded on holiness, because holiness acknowledges that he alone is king. Holiness acknowledges that he owns my toys, he owns my car, he owns my home, my family, he owns my children, my money, my possessions, he owns everything. Whatever it is that I value, holiness recognizes that it is God's alone. And that, my friends, is kingdom theology. The entire book of Zechariah ends with what seems to be a rather odd statement until you read it in context. And there will no longer be a Canaanite in the house of the Lord of hosts in that day. The word Canaanite means merchant. These Canaanite merchants had developed such a reputation in the ancient world that they became synonymous with all that was evil or wicked, or cheating in this world system. It's the same Hebrew word used back in chapter 11, verse 11, where it was often translated oppressed or afflicted, but can mean sheep merchants. These sheep merchants rejected the Messiah at his first coming and sold him out for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a slave, according to Zechariah 11, verse 13. God says that never, ever again will people use my temple, my house, for a place of merchandise. Never, ever again will humans use the worship of God to cheat, to steal, to oppress and exploit other people. Never, ever again will humans huckster the word of God for profit. These merchandisers who look at Christ in terms of their profit margin will never enjoy the blessings of the kingdom. I am glad. I'm glad of that, aren't you? 
It is wonderful to know that there is coming a day when holiness wins and God rules, and powerful people will never ever again exploit and oppress others in the name of God. The culmination of all human history is the kingdom of Jesus Christ on this earth. His kingdom renewal program will be completed when Christ's feet touch the top of the Mount of Olives and the nations feel the sting of his wrath. Then all mankind will bow before him and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In 1983, ABC aired a controversial program entitled The Day After. More than 100 million people watched the program during its initial broadcast. The Day After was a drama about a nuclear Armageddon which engulfed the world. There was a four-minute holocaust in which bombs fell and a white light split the sky over Kansas, the home of one of the major characters in the program. A mushroom cloud materialized with buildings exploding and imploding. People were vaporized on screen and total destruction rained down upon the earth. And then the screen went blank. And a single voice was heard saying, Is anybody there? Anybody at all? Then the same music that opened the program was again heard. No words were sung, but it was the tune of the great old Christian hymn, How Firm a Foundation. How firm a foundation, you saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. What more can he say than to you he has said, to you who for refuge to Jesus have fled? The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That's all. Though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no, never, no, never forsake. My friends, Jesus Christ is the foundation for the future of this world. He is the only hope for a world under threat of a nuclear holocaust. Let us exalt his name together in the light of his coming reign as King of kings and Lord of lords.